great job, praise team, this morning. Great job, you all. It was a blessing to worship with you this morning. So today there are an estimated 8 billion people in the world. That's a lot of people. During, uh, if you look at Jesus' time, there were about 200 and 250 million is what is estimated, which is still a lot of people, obviously a lot more today. And as we think about the scores and scores and scores of people that have existed since Adam and Eve that have continued to be born into this world, it can be really overwhelming when you think about how many people have walked this earth. I mean, out of all the countless billions of people, there have been some pretty good standouts, too. You look at, like, Alexander the Great, who conquered the known world in, like, the shortest time ever, amazingly. You got Albert Einstein, who just blew us away with his ability with mathematics and his, his reasoning skills. And then you've got, you know, guys like Benjamin Franklin, who invents things and understands electricity, and just amazing. We could go on and on and on about these giants that we have in history. But in a world full of these giant figures, how can this simple carpenter from the rural town of Nazareth stand out? As we, all, we already discussed already, his birth was so simple, he was placed in a glorified feeding trough. I mean, you know, really, and then he grows up in this, I mean, no, no, you know, I know we all are in West Virginia, but it's a podunk hick town of Nazareth. It's not necessarily the Ritz-Carlton, like it's not Beverly Hills or Hollywood. And this guy grows up just a very simple life. Yeah, we had some, some moments of, wow, you know, when we had Simeon and Anna who proclaimed how wonderful this kid would be. And then we have him at 12 with the rabbis, and he's learning, and these guys are just like, wow, who is this kid? But then we go from 12 till today. Now he's going to be 30 years old, around 30, when he starts his ministry. And there's nothing of note that the gospel writers recorded. So this, this is a huge gap of possibly not a lot of events, you know, just kind of growing and continuing to, to become a man. Uh, and, and you're like, well, how is, how is this guy more known than anyone else? Uh, but all that's about to change, though. We're going to see here that the Scripture is going to put a spotlight on the Messiah. You know, we've seen John the Baptist, and we've talked about him. You know, we, we, we've seen Zechariah, Elizabeth, we've seen Mary. But now we're going to just see a huge gear shift for the rest of our study through Luke that it's going to be focused on Jesus Christ and him alone and his ministry. And we're going to see that, that how Luke and, uh, magnifies the might of and the glory of Jesus Christ. And we're going to see that although, although he is fully human, one of the billions that have walked this earth, he is also fully God. He is mightier than all and above all. So join me as we read today's scripture. We're going to be in Luke 3, starting in verse 15. Um, technically, we're going through 38, but we're going to stop reading at 23. I won't read you the entire genealogy here. I know you all are really upset about that, but um, it is a great thing to study. Um, genealogies are very important, so I don't say that to, to, to downplay them at all. It's just in a sermon when you only have, you know, 35 minutes, something like that, it may be a little time-consuming to go there today with you, but I do highly suggest that you, we will address it, but I highly suggest that you study it more in-depthly on your own. All right, let's start at verse 15 here. As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ. John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him, meaning John, for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all these evil things that Herod had done, added them, 
or added this to them all, he locked, that he locked John up in prison. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus had also been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, um, there is a lot here, a lot of meat, a lot of things that I want us to grasp, a lot of things that I've been blessed by as I've studied your scriptures. Uh, Lord, and I pray that we all come to this with open hearts, open minds, you help us to be focused on your word. There's so much that I can't address that I want to address, um, Lord, and so I just pray that we have a personal relationship with you, that we are in your word personally, that we are studying it without somebody having to, to necessarily direct you. Uh, God, may we have a love for your word, and I pray that this week that, that everyone here opens your word up and, and studies it even harder and, and sees just how wonderful it is, how rich the depths of your scriptures are. May we be changed by your word today, and may you be glorified through our service today, Lord. We love you, and amen. All right, so today we're going to see two overarching attributes of Jesus Christ to recognize. The first is we should recognize that Christ is mighty. We should recognize that Christ is mighty. Uh, this word mighty came from verse 16. We're going to get in a minute. John the Baptist refers to Jesus as mightier than himself, and the Greek word for this is eschiros, uh, which means strong, powerful, and champion. I love that champion. That's a it's a really cool translation there, or yeah, uh, uh, interpretation or translation of that word. During the first point, we're going to see that Christ outshines all the rest. There is no one who outshines Christ. And the first subpoint we're going to see here is Christ is mightier than John and all other men. Christ is mightier than John and all other men. I'm going to reread it, verses 15 and 16 for us. And the people were in expectation, and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ. John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not, not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So we see here the people had noticed something special about John the Baptist. There was something special about this guy uh, as, you, as you look at him. And obviously, he, we know he was a prophet. We know he was a special man. He was born to these two elderly Levites that had a miraculous conception as well, not quite as miraculous as Mary with the Holy Spirit making the baby, but miraculous nonetheless as these two older couples, who, or older people that shouldn't have been able to have a baby did. And so because of this miraculous birth, you know, and because of, you know, just this, this eccentric guy living out in the wilderness, we see in other gospels that he ate like honey and like locusts and lived in the wild. And so he's just this really eccentric guy. Maybe he was the Messiah and the people are kind of talking a little bit and John, being the humble guy that he is, says, no way, not me, don't, don't look at me like that. And he quickly diverts all attention that everyone's putting on him, and he puts it on others. And I think we can learn a lot by that, because sometimes whenever you share the gospel with somebody, when you mentor somebody, people will look at you as their Jesus, as their Messiah, and you've got to be really quick to be like, no, dude, if you're looking at me, you're gonna, you're gonna, I'm going to fail. I'm, you're, if you're trying to base all of your faith off of Pastor Jonathan, you're, you're, you're not going to be successful that way because I am not perfect. I am not your Messiah. I'm not anyone's Messiah, but I know the Messiah who he is. And just like John, we should always turn that attention, even with our children. Sometimes your children will look at you and they'll see you as very holy, and, and they should do that. You know, you should live a holy life, and hopefully there is that relationship. 
but they should know very very quickly that you're not going to be perfect, that they're, you need to be humble and make sure they know this life is tough and that they need to look at Jesus as their rock. And in this uh, diverting attention, he, he brings up this sandals thing, and a lot of us here are like, you know, what, what is he really talking about? You know, we don't wear sandals like on dirt roads like they did. If you think about this, this was a very menial task for uh, servants. Usually it was the lowest of slaves or servants that would have to untie their master's uh, sandals and wash their feet. And John says, that's how much lower than Christ that I am. I am, I am one who should be in the dust on the ground at, you know, at his feet, and I'm not even worthy to be there. I'm not even worried to be there. So just love John's humility here. He then proceeds to show this huge chasm between he and Jesus by differentiating their baptisms. And he compares the baptism that he is doing with the baptism that Christ will bring with him. And the word baptism here is used more metaphorically to talk about the difference of their works, the works that John does versus the works that Jesus does. John works to prepare a people ready for the Lord while Jesus has power and authority because he is God-made flesh. Uh, John prepares people and, and draws them to repentance. Jesus comes with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And those two words, we need to kind of tease those out a little bit. Obviously, the word Holy Spirit, we get that. You know, the Holy Spirit was given to the apostles. The Holy Spirit fell at Pentecost. You know, we understand when we're saved, we're filled with the Holy Spirit. That makes sense. The Holy Spirit uh, is there. That Holy Spirit, once we are saved, bestows spiritual gifts upon us, illuminates the scriptures for us so that we can understand them. I think most of us would understand that the Holy Spirit is God who comes and lives inside you. We are the temple of God, as we've talked about multiple times, and we have the Holy Spirit live inside of us. The Holy Spirit does good works for us, through us, as we saw in Ephesians 2.10, as we've talked about multiple times. But what about this fire? You know, fire can be positive and negative in the Bible, and so what about this? And Commentators can be really divided on this, uh, uh, the application of this fire. Some say that, that John is, refers to a refining fire. We see this in 1 Peter or, uh, 1, 7, which we read in our Bible study a couple weeks ago. Uh, we see this, so that, by, or so that the ten tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So fire in the Bible is occasionally used in refining terms. Uh, so we think about gold. If we want to make gold more pure, we heat it up, the impurities burn off, and now we have a more pure gold. We see that referred to us. We go through trials. God uses trials in our lives. We go through these hard times, and what those do is they help to get rid of, get, get rid of the rough edges, to sand us down, to get rid of some of the impurities, and God uses those tough times uh, to help us. Uh, as Brother Lee talked about a little bit uh, this morning, we, we talked about how, how God allows us to go through, through trials, persecutions, our God majors in suffering, and how that suffering will help us to become more godly. However, the context here, if we keep looking, if you remember when we read verses 16 and down, we're going to get into 17 and 18 here, it most likely refers to the fire of judgment on unbelievers, and you're going to see this in context, and that is most likely the cor correct interpretation in this context. That brings us into our next sub-point, Christ is mightier than the chaff. Christ is mightier than the chaff. And I'm going to read these two verses here. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. So obviously we see the fire here. <coughs> the fire that John goes right into is the fire of hell. 
it is, it is very clear that that is what he is talking about. And as we get into this, we're going to talk about winnowing. You can go back to that picture. That's fine. So a while back, we talked about what winnowing was, but let's go ahead and readdress it if we kind of forgot. It's something we don't really do. I don't think you all have been winnowing in the last couple of days, probably, uh, winnowing your grain out in your fields. Uh, so here we see an example of someone winnowing grain, and they have this big fork-like uh, thing called a winnowing fork. And they, what they would do is you had this wheat grain, and this wheat grain would be have this in, in, in di- undigestible husk around it, along with the actual wheat that was edible, and you would throw it up, the undi- indigestible part would blow away, and the nice wheat would fall so that you had edible grain. And this was really important because, as we just talked about, that chaff is indigestible to humans. And the pure wheat would be gathered there, and, and it would, it would kind of go from there, but that chaff, uh, the stuff that would blow away, had no nutritional value. So a diet in the first century, which food was not near as plentiful as it is today, uh, chaff in that time would end, end up being a dead person. If all you did was eat chaff, or you've had a diet that was very high in chaff, you wouldn't get enough calories, enough caloric intake, and your life would not be one that lasted very long. So it was really important to get rid of that chaff. This is the reason why the Bible refers to chaff as unbelievers. The pure wheat would be gathered into the barn, meaning that we who are in Christ, hopefully everyone here, that would be us, are gathered into eternal life with Jesus Christ in heaven. How wonderful is that? We're destined for heaven to spend eternity with him. Yet the chaff, or unbelievers, have a much different fate. Uh, We see that chaff is gathered, and it's burned. Burned with an unquenchable fire. That's a tough word, unquenchable fire. So this Greek word for unquenchable is actually asbestos, which sounds very similar, doesn't it? Where we'll get the, so it's where we get the English word asbestos, uh, or if you're from England, asbestos, uh, <laughs> depending on how you want to say it. And that word is actually spelled exactly the same way. We have, this is asbestos is what you're seeing here, and I'm sure you've seen tons of commercials with uh, different litigation things about asbestos, and we'll get to that in a minute. Um, but asbestos, the reason asbestos was really, really highly sought after um, from really the 1600s and on was because it's really hard to catch on fire. It was a great insulator around electric stuff. It was a great insulator for houses as well. It, it was, you know, it really, really used for that kind of thing. And, you know, you look at a house now, it catches fire and it goes quick, like drywall, things like that catch fire very quick. This did not. And so it was very, it was a, a safer alternative, they thought, because it would not burn up. But interestingly, we know that asbestos today is a cancer-causing agent, causes mesothelioma, lung disease, different things like that. And so this actually makes this illustration that of this word unquenchable, this, this uh, as word asbestos, makes it more terrifying, to be honest. So we see that unbelievers are compared to chaff, meaning they have no nutritional value and are gathered to be burned. So that's pretty terrifying in itself. Then the burning of unbelievers is unquenchable or inextinguishable inextinguishable. It, it, it never burns up like asbestos. It, it, it's hard to burn. It just is there, and it just never seems to be consumed, so it's an unquenchable fire. And this word now, not only is it burned forever, as far as a, an illustration of hell, but it also is known to cause cancer and lung disease. So it's even a cancer-causing agent. So we look at unbelievers, that's a good representation of unbelievers. They cause a a cancer a lot of times because they're of their father, the devil, and they bring about division and they bring about that kind of thing. Brothers and sisters, I pray that everyone here is wheat. I pray that we are not the chaff. We are not going to burn with unquenchable fire as asbestos, asbestos, uh, unquenchable there. 
And I pray that we're going to be prepared to be gathered with God forever in his barn, as we see here, or in heaven with him forever. And my friends, if, if there's only one way to avoid such a fate of being burned by an unquenchable fire, and that is through Jesus Christ, as we're going to continue to talk about today. And if you haven't, he is mighty to save, my friends. I just pray that you have put your faith and trust in him. If not, I'd love to talk with you about that. So we've seen that Christ is mightier than John and other men. We've seen that he's mightier, mightier than the chaff. And Jesus, being the mightiest of all, came to separate the wheat from the chaff. And we see this again in Matthew 13, 24 through 30, in the parable of the weeds and the wheat. Many of us know the KJV, we're going to talk about the wheat and the tares. Everybody's like, oh yeah, I remember that. When you see the, the wheat and the weeds, people are kind of scratching their head like, what? what is, which one is that? Wheat and tares, that word tares means weeds, similar thing. And Jesus tells of a parable of a, a man, a master who, who plants his nice wheat grain out there, but then his enemy comes and throws a bunch of weeds among it and ruins what was a perfect field. Reminds me of the fall, right? So God plants people in the garden, but what does Satan do? He comes and he brings weeds, and sin comes and, and curses the ground. And so now, now this is where this master is, so what does he do? Well, his people say, hey, let's go out and let's just try to get all of those weeds. The master being smart, knowing that if he does that right now, he's going to actually hurt his grain. Uh, the root systems are probably interlocked. You know, it's hard to really tell what's wheat, what's tares. If you look at wheat, sometimes it's hard to tell the difference. You look at a new believer, sometimes there's some, some sharp edges that need, need, need to be rubbed off, and sometimes it's hard to tell the difference sometimes. Uh, and so he's like, no, let's let them grow, and then eventually we will. And this is what he says in Matthew 13, 29 through 30 at the end. But he said, no, less than gathering the weeds, you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest, and at harvest time, it's the day of the Lord is what we're talking about here, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. Again, the same idea. That's where we are right now. We have wheat, and we have weeds that are interweaving all around the wheat uh, when you're looking. And, and sometimes you're even looking at churches where you have some wheat, but you've got weeds that are in the churches that are trying to choke out the churches. And it's our job to make sure that we are the wheat and that we are of God because we will be, be brought into his barn. Praise the Lord for heaven. that We can look forward to that. But if we are not, those who oppose him will be cast into hell. Next, we see that Christ is mightier than Herod and all earthly rulers moving forward. Let's go ahead and read verses 19 and 20 again here. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. We see here that the truth of John's preaching got him into trouble. And there's an important lesson for us to learn from John here, too, that we don't refrain from preaching the truth. We don't refrain from speaking the truth to people just because it gets us in trouble. If you look at, at Jesus, he, he highly exalts John as one of the most wonderful men who had ever lived before that reason. So he was humble, and he preached the truth, and that is something that we want to do. And there's also, I know our moms and dads always said, if you tell the truth, you won't get in trouble. And, and there is in a godly house, that should be the case. You know, people that tell the truth, I know for my children, they tell me the truth, that the discipline is much less than if there's not truth. And they've learned by that, and they're usually very good at that, praise the Lord. But here's the thing, in our world, when you preach the truth, when you speak the truth, it will bring trouble. 
I can promise you that. We can see people canceled left and right who are godly people, who are preaching truth, who live their life according to the truth, and they're ostracized and they're outcast. But I can tell you this, you won't be ostracized from heaven. You won't be on the outside of that. You won't be bound into bundles and thrown into unquenchable fire if you're of the truth. And so I would much rather be an outcast in this world than an outcast when it comes to eternity, my friends. So we, despite bad outcomes, but despite persecution, we continue to pursue and to preach and to live in the truth. And you see, John got himself into trouble because he spoke out against evil. King Herod at this point had um, locked John up because of what John had said about him. King Herod had taken his brother Philip's wife to be his own, and John had said that was a travesty, that was an abomination. He was in sin, as well as, well as among other things, and, and Herod in retaliation of John's outspoken condemnation locked John up in prison. I'm sure many of you have been in situations where you maybe had to speak up, or you, were, you should have spoken up, or you look back, maybe it could be your job. You don't have a job anymore. You know, may, maybe it can be a friend group. You know, you spoke up and like, hey, you know, I'm not, uh, especially in young people, you know, they, they, they come up with these bad ideas. You look at Proverbs, uh, Proverbs 1, it kind of really shows young men getting together saying, hey, let's go do this bad thing. And we need to not take counsel with other foolish people. And there's that time where you have to make that call. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to make that decision. Or at work, there's a compromise. There's just something that's not right. And you got to say, no, I'm, I'm not going to make that compromise. And that can sometimes be your job. That can sometimes be your livelihood, but God will provide no matter what, especially we know eternally, he definitely will. And so after a seemingly short time ministering and preaching, John's ministry would be over. Just like Jesus, he'd be murdered very early in the st- after starting his ministry. Luke doesn't give us that at this point. He gives it to us in Luke 9, 7, th- 7 through 9. He says, now, now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening, and he was perplexed because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead, and some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had, ri- had risen. Herod said, John, I beheaded, but who is this about whom I heard? I hear such things. And then he sought to see him. So we're given more information from Matthew and Mark that in a sick, horrible thing, Herod had Herodias's daughter that she that he that she would had had, had with Philip um, dance at his birthday, and he was pleased and asks her whatever she wants, and she asks her mom Herodias, and Herodias being a little upset with John as well that John had called both of them out, asked for his head on a platter, and they they gave it to him. So therefore, John's life was cut so short there. And at this point, it, it appears even as we move forward that Herod continues to have the upper hand. He's killed John, and now he is taking part in the crucifixion, as we'll see, of Jesus Christ. Uh, Luke 23, 6 through 12 tells us that Jesus is sent to Herod by Pontius Pilate. Herod treats him with contempt, mocks him, arrays him in obnoxious clothes, and sends him back to Pilate. So Jesus is ultimately crucified under the rule of Herod, as well as Pontius Pilate, the jurisdiction of Herod. But we see afterwards that Christ is still mightier than Herod. Herod Antipas, which is who we've been talking about, uh, did suffer an ill fate whenever he, his nephew, Herod Agrippa I, ends up deposing him and taking over his land in A.D. 37. And he ends up, he and Herodias end up banished. And ultimately we see Christ's sovereignty continue along and that, that Christ is not 
under the authority of man. He, he, he willingly went to the cross. It wasn't Herod that crucified him. He walked willingly to the cross. And we see here that even after his death, he continues, we know, we know that he rose three days later, he continues to sovereignly rule as Herod Agrippa. We, we, we read this uh, at Acts 12, 20, in Acts 12, 21 through 23. This, this instrument, this is Herod Agrippa we're talking about now. Herod Antipas has already been deposed. Herod Agrippa, the instrument of God's judgment on Antipas, as now Agrippa is in charge. <coughs> this is where Agrippa goes. And on the appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, The voice of a God and not of a man. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down, because he did not give God the glory, and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. So Agrippa sees this power and authority of blessing that he's received from God, who sovereignly blessed him, and Christ is still greater than any worldly authority. And what does he do? In a moment, he's gone. In a moment, he's gone. So my friends, Christ is mightier than all. He's mightier than John the Baptist. He's mightier than, than all other men. He's mightier than the chaff, most certainly, and he's also mightier than every earthly world leader. We look around today, there are some god, ungodly leaders in our world. Can I get an amen to that? I, I think there are some ungodly leaders in our nation. There are some ungodly leaders in our world system. We have very horrible things going on in China, North Korea, Russia. And we look around and we're like, man, you know, God, how, how long, how much longer? We know we see here God is sovereign. He's in control. Why he allows certain leaders to lead as long as they do, we don't know. We'll find out in eternity, but we know that he is in control. After seeing how great and mighty that Christ is, Luke goes on to urge us to recognize that Christ is to be magnified. Christ is to be magnified. That is point two here. If you recall, that I re relayed an illustration <coughs> that my friend Pastor Josh Bailey had given me, that this magnified is not a, a microscope, <coughs> as to take something small and try to blow it up, but yet a telescope to take something so vast and large that we just want to zoom into parts of his, of his greatness. And like the universe, when we look out, it just ha seemingly has no end. It just continues to go. So is Christ's glory that can never be fully magnified. But as we seek to magnify Christ, we see that Christ is preeminent, fully God, and above all, as our sub-point here, Christ is preeminent, fully God, and above all. So let's go ahead and read verses 21 and 22. Just an amazing couple of verses here. <clears throat> now, when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying. The heavens were open, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. Wow, we've, we've recently discussed the two natures of Christ, that Christ is both fully God and fully man. And here we see the truth of God being fully, or Jesus being fully God on display for all to see at his baptism. And so Jesus' baptism makes certain <coughs> for everyone watching that Jesus is fully God. The heavens are open, right? The Holy Spirit descends like a dove, and the Father speaks. The entire Trinity is present at one point here one, and on, on this glorious occasion. Before diving into just, there's just so much we can get out of here. But I think a lot of us are kind of looking at this saying, why is Jesus being baptized? Like, by John at that. So John's like, you know, he's baptizing all these people that come to him. As we talked about, it was a sign of repentance for those who had turned from sin and, and were being prepared for the coming of the Messiah. So we look, we look at this like, John, 
why is he baptizing him? And, and even John, looking at Jesus, saying, dude, I, I know you're, you're the Messiah. I, I, I've heard all about you. Uh, he says the same thing, Matthew three fourteen through 15. John would have prevented him. Like, dude, I'm not doing this. You're, you're God. I'm not baptizing God made flesh. He says, I need to be baptized by you. Why, why don't you, Jesus, baptize me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented at that point. So there's many theories on why Jesus was baptized, some confirming the ministry of John, others state that it showed that Christ identified with the people that he was coming to save. Uh, what we do know is that Jesus needed no baptism for the clen- cleansing of his sins or a sign of repentance. He had no, ne- no need to repent because he was sinless. He always has been sinless. But what we're told here is that, that even though even John understands Christ is sinless, even with his statement here, who is he to baptize? Jesus, but as Jesus asserts, he has to be baptized in, to, in order to fulfill all righteousness. He, he gets baptized because of prophecy. He wants to fulfill the prophecy. Looking back at our scripture here in Luke 3, we, we see that the entire Godhead, like we just said, was, was present at Jesus' baptism. We have the Father speaking, the Holy Spirit descending, and we clearly see that God is one God, but three distinct persons that are not limited by time or space. We see them all present at the same time and the same space. How, how crazy is that? And it's so difficult for, our, for us to wrap our heads around. But, but we see how clear the Bible gets rid of the chaff as far as bad theories, things like that, that we see. God doesn't morph into, from one to another. He is present in all three persons at the same time, yet is one God and is in complete unity. And some of you may scratch your heads, and if you don't scratch your head a little bit, you probably don't really understand what we're talking about. Uh, It is way beyond our ability to understand how God is one God, as we see in Deuteronomy 6, and even going back to Genesis 1, but yet he's three distinct persons. And if God, as we've said before, was easy to understand, he wouldn't be worthy of our worship and our glory. In Christ's baptism, the Holy Spirit descends on him in bodily form, like a dove. And this is often, if you see pictures, you'll see a, a dove flying down. It's this nice, graceful, beautiful dove. Um, but what, what we don't understand, what we know is we don't actually realize what, um, what the Holy Spirit looked like, per se. Uh, it's a simile, this word like. It's like a dove, and more like the gracefulness of a dove is, is how the Holy Spirit came down. There, So we're not exactly told what the physical manifestation of the Holy Spirit was. doesn't mean you have to throw away all your pictures of a dove falling on Christ. But I just want you to know, in the Bible, we really aren't given that fact. Exactly, the Holy Spirit is a spirit. So take on a different form if you, if you wanted to. But what we do know is that this event is a type of inauguration. So if you, if you know about like the presidency, you have the inauguration of the president who's going to be the president coming up. It's saying, hey, this guy's going to be in. This is the inauguration of who's going to be president. Uh, Then you have the other president who we call a lame duck. You know, he's just sitting there, you know, kind of finishing out. uh, He or she are finishing out their their, their thing there. And uh, Jesus is inaugurated, but he's never a lame duck. Jesus has always been the the God. He's been God from the beginning, and he's going to be God forevermore. But at this point, you're seeing this inauguration of the coming kingdom on earth, that Jesus Christ is God, the second person of the Holy Trinity. And there's no doubt regarding who Christ is. It is very clear that he is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. How amazing is that? 
And although we must not forget that Christ is fully God, and Luke has made that very clear through these couple of verses that he is, we also understand that Christ has a genealogy, that he is fully man and able to give his life for us. I'm going to read just verse 23 here. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli. Time would fail to go into the genealogy in these verses, moving on until verse 38. But I think there's a, a few important teachings and understanding in this genealogy that I think we need to grasp, we need to understand, especially in a world that is always trying to poke holes at the Bible and try to show inconsistencies or what they would call an er- or er- errors of the Bible. We know there are none. We talked about this morning. It is the inerrant word of God. But the most obvious thing is we look at Matthew 1 and we look at Luke 3, there are two genealogies. Uh, the first thing we see is that, that Matthew goes back to Abraham. Luke goes back to Adam. So why is that? Uh, well, first off, Matthew's writing to a Jewish audience. And so he goes back to Abraham to say, hey, the Jews are all a son, sons and daughters of Abraham. Matthew's letting them know that Jesus is a descendant of Abraham and thus the fulfillment of the covenant promise that was given in Genesis to Abraham. And so he wants, Matthew wants them to know that, whereas Luke is writing more to a Gentile audience. And he's like, hey, yeah, yep, he did come from Abraham, but we're going to go all the way back to Adam because remember, we've talked about this multiple times, the Proto-Evangelium. Uh, we see this in Genesis 3.15, the first gospel Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is talking about the coming Messiah that would save all of the world. Every single person would have that opportunity to come to a saving knowledge. All nations, all races, not all would. Obviously, we know that many reject that, but this shows that even the Gentiles were included. Not just the Jews, but the Gentiles were included as well this first gospel. The next thing we notice when we look at these two different genealogies, as a lot of liberal scholars have looked to, to attack the inerrancy of Scripture, are they're different once you get to, once you get to David. So we see they kind of go, you get, to, you get to David, and all of a sudden there's some divergency, that there's some differences, and people scratch their head like, well, well, well how does this work? And there's different theories that different, uh, you know, biblical scholars have come up with, but the most obvious and probably more most biblically congruent and understandable way is that Luke provides Mary's genealogy, his true earthly lineage, his true DNA lineage that comes from David, whereas Matthew provides Joseph's. If you look at Matthew, he's writing to a primarily Jewish audience, and they follow paternal, uh, uh, paternal seed there. They're, they're going to follow that all the way down in that lineage, that genealogy, whereas Luke uh, shows uh, that, that, that he, he's taking it from Mary, and he even says, what does he say there in verse 23? He was the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, alluding to the fact that this isn't Joseph's genealogy. He was supposedly Joseph's, but you could put in there Mary, you know, the son of Mary, the son of Heli. So Heli is likely Mary's father, and Joseph's put here just because of tradition. Usually they follow the male's genealogy. We can understand this, too, because if you, if you look through the Gospels of, of Matthew and Luke, you look at Matthew, he seems to have more of Joseph's perspective. If we look back at Matthew uh, 1, uh, we see the, the, the dream of Joseph. Joseph's going to divorce his wife quietly, and what, what happens? The angel appears to him and says, don't do that. Take her as your wife. Uh, so, so we're seeing more of, of Joseph's perspective moving forward, whereas Luke 
we haven't heard anything about Joseph, really. You know, it's been all about Mary. We've heard her Magnificat. We, we've seen the angel Gabriel come to Mary. We've seen her visit Elizabeth, her cousin. And then we've gotten these time and time again, these statements that Mary treasured these things in her heart. So we can see that Luke has a strong, it's very likely that he has the eyewitness account of Mary as he writes his book as well. And so all this is just provided to, to remind you that the Word of God is true and accurate, to give you answers and understand when people come to you and they say, the Bible's not even, it's not real. I mean, even Jesus, the whole, the whole crux of Jesus, his genealogy, they, they disagree. Matthew and Luke, two gospel writers, they write two different genealogies. This, this book isn't real, and, and you have a reason. You have, you have an understanding. You understand, hey, you're missing the picture. You, you're, you want it to be false because if it's false, then you don't have to answer to God. Of course, unbelievers want it to be false. They have nobody to answer to at that point, but we know that, that it is true, that it is the inerrant word of God. As we move forward, uh, we're, we're going to get to, to chapter 4 next week. And we've, we've mentioned that Luke has given his genealogy, and he, and he goes all the way to Adam. And we've already mentioned Genesis 3, and the reason the Proto-Evangelium or Evangelium uh, came about, the first gospel, was because of the fall. So Adam and Eve, they, they, they failed the first temptation. The, the, the serpent of old came, and they failed the first temptation. Adam was a weak leader. He didn't stand strong. He didn't protect his wife. He just gave in to temptation, passively went into it. But my friends, the new and better Adam has arrived. And I, I pray that we get excited for next week because we're going to see that this new and better Adam, Jesus Christ, does not fail the temptation test. I pray that after today's message that you understand that Christ is mightier than all. I, I pray that you see that there's no one who can stand against his glory, that he is greater than John, all other men, that he's greater than the chaff, and obviously he's even greater than every earthly ruler on this earth. And I pray that you see him magnified and, and glorified. And we're going to see as we go through this book many amazing miracles we're going to see him cast out demons. We're going to see tons of fireworks in Christ's ministry. But before we get there, we're going to see Christ be tempted in the wilderness. So I pray that you join us next week as we continue our journey through the Gospel of Luke. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for just all the, the blessing of your, of your Scripture today, God. There's just so much meat and potatoes in there. I know there's so much that, that I'd love to go into further, and, and I pray that that everyone here is just, just wants to go home and open up their scriptures and learn more about you, about your baptism, as they read the different accounts of it, and they're able to put it together and get that full picture as we talked about a couple of weeks back. As they're able to go back and look at John the Baptist and his life and how he pointed to the Messiah. God, I pray that you are glorified through us, that you give us a fire and hunger for your word, and that it's not just intellectual. Obviously, we want it to go into our minds, and we want to grow through that. But God, may it go into our hearts, and may we just have more and more love for you, and may we give our entire life to you. God, change us from the inside out and make us more like you. Help us to know that there are those who are chaff right now. There are those that are, are destined for the asbestos, the unquenchable fire. Lord God, help us to share the gospel with those around us. May we see souls saved, and may we see less and less chaff that is thrown into the fire. May we see a transformation that only you can do to turn, to turn an unbeliever into a believer. God, may, may, may we see you take a heart of stone and give a heart of flesh. I pray that if anyone here does not know you as their Lord and Savior, that you do that in their life right now, and that they come and talk with me about that or someone else around them, Lord.
God, we love you, we praise you, we thank you, and may our lives bring you glory. Amen. Have a blessed week.